The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to the APTA's Neurology Section's Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast. Today's discussion is on vestibular agnosia, which our team is really galvanized about. I'm your host, Pooja Agarwal, a physical therapist by profession, uh, working as a director of rehab services at Phelps Hospital Northwell Health. And our discussion today is on vestibular agnosia, which can be loosely defined as a loss of perception of vertigo and imbalance due to lesion in the right hemisphere of the brain. We're very fortunate today to have with us a doctoral student from the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Reagan Harrell, who is a physical therapist and a board certified specialist in neurologic physical therapy. She received her bachelor's degree in biology from Duquesne University and her doctor of physical therapy also from Duquesne in 2015. She completed the UPMC Neurological Physical Therapy Residency Program in 2018 and is currently completing her PhD studies in rehabilitation sciences. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the physical therapy department. Dr. Harold's areas of interest are the use of technology to improve the diagnosis and treatment of vestibular disorders and dizziness and balance disorder manifestations in a traumatic brain injury population. Her recent work investigates the effect of vestibular agnosia on the reporting of BPPV symptoms in patients post-TBI. In a recent study in Press with Otology and Neurotology, her team discovered a 57.75% prevalence of BPPV in patients post-TBI. However, only a 7% prevalence of reporting of symptoms of dizziness and imbalance. Her research agenda includes further work into understanding the role of cortex involvement in perceiving dizziness and imbalance. Dr. Harrell, I couldn't be more excited today to see you here on the Poet Podcast and also to hear all the exciting information and education that you will be giving to us today. And um, I welcome you to our podcast. Thank you for agreeing to do this and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a complete pleasure. Uh, we obviously want to start with what vestibular agnosia is. Uh, these are two terms we normally don't see put together, and it's probably the very first time on our podcast that we're introducing them together. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a new term. I, it first shows up in the research in 2020. So it is a baby in terms of terms that we've heard. But it's this idea that people post-cortical injury have this absence of sensation from the vestibular system. So they don't perceive vertigo in a way that we normally expect. They don't report symptoms that we're used to hearing. You know, there's no room spinning. There's no, I feel off balance. It's sort of like a complete lack of sensation. Um, so it was first coined from Dr. Smungle's lab out in London. And it's, he's sort of the leading uh, researcher on this right now, but we're starting to get our toes in in the US side too, or at least some of us are. Yeah, so it's just lack of sensation from that vestibular input. So typically a patient with this diagnosis will not really be reporting any sort of dizziness or vertiginous behavior or signs. 
Correct. So um, anecdotally from that research that we have um, in press, we would have patients who you would take them back into a Dick's Hall Pike and they have just bounding torsional nystagmus. It's like clear as day. You can tell it's BPPV and they are not complaining of anything. They're not trying to pull their head up. They're not saying they're dizzy. They're just laying there while you're holding that first position. And we would even ask like my colleague and I, you know, are you dizzy right now? And they'll say, no, no, nothing's wrong. Should I be? And it's just, it's such an interesting mismatch because, you know, when you do this on people who can perceive it, they, everyone's like, oh no, like what, what's that? Like make it stop. And there'll be people. Yeah. They just completely not deny it, but like, it just doesn't exist. It's pretty wild. So then would it be uh, clinically prudent to do a Dix hall pike even though the patient is not reporting those symptoms, especially in TBI, concussion, and any yeah, other so diagnosis? We, yeah, so if you look at the research out there on TBI or P- BPPV post-TBI, there's some varying numbers. Um, a lot of the research is done in more of the concussion, mild traumatic brain injury world. But a lot of the studies, they, their inclusion criteria is that people had to report dizziness. And so when you look at that population, BPPV is prevalent, but what we were seeing clinically, I worked um, before I transitioned into academia, I was full-time on an inpatient rehab setting on a traumatic brain injury unit, but we were seeing like nursing reports and our OT colleagues were saying like, hey, we're getting people out of bed and they have that eye movement that you always tell us to watch out for. Um, So we were testing people and finding BPPV in people that didn't have symptoms. So we put together this project where we screened everybody, regardless of if you said you were dizzy or not. And that's where we found that, you know, 43 out of our 73 people had BPPV, but only seven were like, hey, I'm kind of dizzy when I roll over. So we changed our practice at our hospital. And it's sort of um, now one of the things that before somebody leaves the brain injury unit, if they had a traumatic mechanism, they need to be screened for BPPV, just because we know as everyone I'm sure listening, you know, BPV cause falls and it decreases quality of life. And these people have already had a traumatic injury. We don't need to add to that by something that's so easily corrected. So as a natural segue, uh, based on the information you just gave us, when we relocate these patients, are there any changes in their behavior? Because technically they're not perceiving any symptoms. Is there any change that's noted? So we certainly have anecdotally, and we're looking at trying to write up a couple cases specifically from our data set where people who were more agitated pre-repositioning maneuvers, because every time they were changing position, they were probably getting dizzy, their agitation levels on like an agitated behavior scale would decrease mm-hmm. after repositioning maneuvers. Um, so there's like one or two instances of that. A few people who definitely were still in that like post-traumatic amnesia realm they reported no change. They sort of had no change, um, but they, like their gait speed got a little better. Their FGA improved a little bit. So there are some like smaller secondary outcomes that we did see improvement in with repositioning, but the symptom reporting never seemed to change. Um, Now is agnosia only seen post TBI or are there other diagnoses that are related to this kind of symptomatology or lack thereof? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question and everything that I've sort of read into and been looking into and talking with some physicians, um, it seems like it's mostly related to traumatic brain injury because there's, it seems to be in that secondary cascade of injuries. So 
something about the global nature of brain injury is what's causing this agnosia. Because we've had other patients that have had strokes or um, in that area, similar area, thalamus, parietal lobe, and they are still able to report symptoms. But I think as we become more aware of this, I'm sure more studies will sort of tease out, is it type of injury or location that determines that? Um, I did see a case study that talked about somebody having similar symptoms, but they had vascular dementia. So I don't know if, again, that was just because it's a little bit more global of an injury versus like the specific area. But right now we're just really seeing it in TBI, but it's only about two years old. So I'm sure that potentially will change as we learn more. Right, definitely. Um, now, since we're not looking at episodes of vertigo here, um, is this uh, associated with otologic symptoms or any otology symptoms at all from the perspective of our neurootologists, or is this purely central? So I don't think we know that at this point. Um, this visual vestibular agnosia can, we've certainly seen it in our sub-study looking at um, BPPV, but we also know that post-TBI, you can get hypofunctions, you can get labyrinthine concussion, you can get central disorders, certainly from cerebellar injuries or any kind of swelling. So I think right now we don't know if it's just related to maybe more peripheral interpretation or if it also has a little bit of a central component. I think it's still a little too new in the game to sort of fully determine that answer. And so would it be fair to say that the role of neurology is more prominent than neurootology and then vestibular rehabilitation has a small role in relocation maneuvers? Yeah, I think so. And I think the other thing is most of the work so far has been done in the acute setting or in the hospital setting. So, and I at least know um, in our setting, we don't have access to neurootology in the inpatient side of things. So they aren't really part of that plan of care and would be more of like a, outpatient after they've discharged referral. Um, and I know the work um, on vestibular agnosia that Dr. Simungal's lab puts out, he's a neurologist by training and all of their patients were also being seen. Granted, it's the UK, so their health system is a little different and I don't know it exactly, um, but they were still all being seen on the inpatient rehab side of things. So I think right now it's a, it falls a little bit under neurology just because line of care, that's how it works, at least for us here in Pittsburgh. Um, but I, there would certainly be a role for neuroautology. They just don't, they don't come visit us on rehab as much as they, as I would like, but I don't win that battle too often. <laughs> right. So let's talk about which part of the brain you mentioned the yeah. right lobe, um, or I'm sorry, the right hemisphere, um, mm -hmm. but not specific to the temporal lobe. It could be a little parietal as well. So can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about which parts of the brain and the right hemisphere is generally involved and does imaging have a role in it? Yeah, absolutely. So they have found, um, in Dr. Smungle's paper, they did imaging pre and post testing and sort of looking at different um, diffuse weighted imaging and fMRI. So they did some very sophisticated, excuse me, um, imaging techniques. And they found that the most commonly affected area in people with vestibular agnosia was the right inferior longitudinal fasciculus. So really thinking parietal temporal like processing, but they also found some interesting um, areas of sort of neuronal change, which is what they were calling it in the posterior thalamus, in the right sagittal, uh, right external capsule, and the corpus callosum. So there's something about 
that global nature of brain injury that if you get the right combination of those areas, you get this, sim this symptom presentation. Um, the MRI and imaging, it's not like, it wouldn't look like a subdural hematoma necessarily or subarachnoid. They were looking at more weighting after or diffuse weighting after the injury itself. So it wouldn't be like you had a right-sided subarachnoid. Some of these patients could have left-sided injury, but they have changes on the right side of their brain post-injury. So I know that they're doing some more research and looking and investigating more what, what causes that. I think um, they were also surprised to find that because um, I would have assumed, you know, right-sided involvement, right damage, it makes sense, but it's never that easy sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the literature does mention uh, a test by Dr. Simangal. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something you can elaborate on as to what the real test is and what it leads us to conclude? Yeah, so he um, was looking at perception of motion. So he took basically the rotary chair test and adapted it. So he had everyone in that rotary chair test spinning about an earth, an earth axis, and they're in the complete dark, which is, sounds similar, but instead of looking for a nystagmus, there is a light um, that is shown. And the person, when they sense that they're moving towards that light, they hit a button. And so that they're starting, he's trying to identify if someone perceives the sense of us moving through space. So he's using that in conjunction with sort of an absence of symptom uh, reporting to sort of say that someone has vestibular agnosia. Um, he is the only one that has this chair at the moment. And so I don't know if it's something that he's looking to produce or sort of make available or if it's just more in a lab setting. But it sounds like we could maybe finagle it if we had a rotary chair around. But it, it's um, they go both directions and the speed is about one hertz. So it's not too fast that you're trying to like make someone nauseous, hopefully. And just out of curiosity, is there reversibility of this um, presentation? Do these patients eventually begin to perceive vertigo as they get better? Or is that even a sign of good prognosis? Um, I don't think we know that yet. Um, I think the other thing that's unclear, especially because all the research has been done in people that are still so acute to that injury um, is the role that like post-traumatic amnesia plays and sort of just that general insight. So I think what further work and what we wanna work on here in Pittsburgh is sort of as someone's cognitive cognition improves in their you know, insight and self-awareness, do they then become aware of vestibular symptoms? Are they related or are they two completely separate you know, paths? I think right now we don't, we don't know, and no one has followed this group of people long-term to sort of see, you know, A, is their BPPV gonna come back or do they develop that hypofunction six months, 12 months, two years post TBI? So I think uh, we, we just don't know that answer yet, but it's a good question. And I am interested to hopefully figure it out one day. I'm sure you will. <laughs> um, the other question I had was, cognition and vestibular agnosia. So is there any correlation or known correlation between uh, getting relocation maneuvers done in these patients and then noting an improvement in their recall memory or general cognition? Yeah, so that we um, went through our data set and tried to see 
what outcome measures our speech therapy friends were kind of doing with people to see if any of those changed. And I think the barrier that we ran into is cognition is such a broad domain that it's very hard to get one outcome measure across a sample of people to say like, yes, it improved. Um, I do think sort of anecdotally based off one or two patients that I remember, you know, people would have a little bit more sort of safety awareness or sort of recognizing like, oh, I didn't lose my balance that time when I turned. But objectively, we didn't necessarily see like an improvement on an orientation log or an improvement on any kind of functional cognitive outcome. Um, but I think, you know, we've certainly, the team that I work with that have been brainstorming, like what, what would an assessment look like that we could complete sort of pre and post repositioning maneuvers to see if, if that would change. Because again, that's a fantastic question that we just don't know yet. Would gait speed be an outcome measure you would consider? We, yeah, absolutely. So we have out, we have that on a few of our subjects. We just weren't hindsight is 2020. Um, and I think if we repeat this, we would certainly be a little bit more thoughtful in like pre repositioning maneuver gate speed versus post repositioning maneuver gate speed. Um, but I think, yeah, we've talked about gate speed. We've talked about like the agitated behavior scale, maybe something like an FGA. If our patient is more at the level that they can complete something like that. Um, so yeah, we've been toying around and sort of uh, trying to figure out what would be a good outcome measure that sort of covers the range of function that our patients would have. Okay. Yeah. Um, anything in terms of the computerized dynamic posturography for these patients, where do you notice a difference in perception uh, when there's a visual surround sway or there's a support sway, are they able to perceive those or they also have trouble appreciating those movements? So we, um, I don't know that anyone has looked at that just yet. Um, again, sometimes those machines, the research again being done more clinically inpatient, we don't always have access to the computerized posturography, but I think that would again be a great follow-up question. I will say that, um, we did notice that people were less like motion sensitive and sort of less fearful of being like around people or walking in like a crowded hallway post repositioning, um, which was an interesting sort of quasi outcome measure that we would use to sort of show progress. And the only real difference would be that there um, we had done like a repositioning maneuver. Um, and then other times that was not true. So yeah, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll put it on my list of list of investigative questions. You're giving me a lot of ideas. We're, like <laughs> we're relying on you for those answers. Yes. So uh, when we look at medical management and rehab management, uh, how would you delineate how much of it falls under medical management um, and what would that entail and how much falls under therapies? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a great question and really doing a lot of education to our physician colleagues, both on the PM&R side and the neurology side. Um, I'm lucky enough to work in a larger health system and our PM&R brain injury doctors also see brain injury consults on the acute care side in our two level one trauma centers. And because of what we've done, they've taken our work to the therapist's in the other hospitals so that if people are maybe not appropriate for rehab, they're starting to be screened for BPPV on the acute side of things so that we can, you know, even shorten that length of time between 
traumatic accident and BPPV. So I think it's, you know, letting people know that BPPV dizziness, people can have these symptoms or this vestibular pathology, but they're not reporting it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. So it would still be super important to be doing a full ocular motor assessment, to be testing the vestibular system, to be doing positional testing, because they might not be able to express in words that we're used to, you know, I'm dizzy, the room is spinning, I feel off balance, but it might be coming out as agitation or frustration or, you know, not dis um, like a lack of wanting to move because maybe they're just so dizzy that if they stay still or they don't participate in therapy, they aren't as dizzy. So we've been doing a big push in our system to try and just get the word out. So medically, not so much like a medication standpoint, but just making sure the doctors are aware that this is this is a present and it's there. And you know, all of us, whether we're vestibular experts or not, you know, we all get basic BPPV education in school. So it's at least something that you can screen or phone a friend. Um, we have taught the PM&R physicians how to do some basic screening. So like in their clinics, if people are coming in, they can at least get some basic knowledge in. Um, some of them are actually pretty good at it too. I have to say, I'll give them, I'll give them props. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then from a rehab perspective, I think it's, you know, we sometimes, especially on in the acute side, we kind of put ourselves in silos of like, well, that's vestibular. I don't really do that. Like we call the one person who works on Saturdays or I work on rehab, like we're, I'm just going to gate trip. So I think it's really remembering that like, it's the whole person sitting in front of us and you know, that vestibular system, it's tiny, but like, if it's out of whack, it's going to throw you off kilter. And it, it doesn't take, you know, we spend an hour plus with our patients each day. So quick little BPPV screen, quick little head impulse test isn't, could tell you a lot of information with not too much effort being put in. So I think the big takeaway from the rehab is checking people regardless of symptom status kind of deal. Completely agree. That's great yeah. information. Um, some of the research also points to um, abnormal um, functioning brain networks. Now, is this a finding in non-TBI patients as in somebody who does not have a neurological diagnosis, but could this be something that somebody has congenitally or um, you just happen to find by accident and it's not a TBI patient, or this is solely focused on TBI patients where this has been identified so far? I think so far it's only been identified in traumatic brain injury population, but I think that's because that's the only place we've looked. But I imagine you know, brain, every brain is different and brains are so complex that I do imagine that sort of like any stimulus, there's a threshold of normal. So I imagine that we will learn, I wouldn't be surprised if we learned some people are more sensitive to vestibular input and some people aren't, which might be why, you know, some people can tolerate having BPPV or a hypofunction for several years before they decide to get it looked at. And some people are like, right away, they're like, nope, gotta, this is not right. This is got to go phone a friend. So I imagine I wouldn't be surprised if it sort of comes out that other diagnoses or some type of genetic or, you know, um, congenital component to it. But yeah, right now it's just TBI. And then that one case study with vascular dementia. So I imagine as more work is done on that, it would come out in that population as well. So for everyone who's listening to this and they work in acute care settings, um, what do you recommend we include in our sort of operational cadence as to how to identify 
uh, patients that we should be working on and doing certain maneuvers or even looking for vestibular agnosia from an acute care setting perspective, what would be your recommendation? Absolutely. And, you know, I know on acute care, we've got, you know, discharge recommendations to make and, you know, staffing is tight. So we're going out with an ungodly amount of patients sometimes. But I think, especially for the patients who are higher level, who we are probably recommending, they go home with maybe home health or um, outpatient, maybe doing that BPPV screen or that head impulse test before they leave, just because we know that that can be such a fall risk. So we're at least getting them that one step safer before they get home and have to, you know, worry, we worry about falls, we worry about running into things or, you know, things like that. They just came into the hospital. Let's try and keep them home for a little bit. So I think, you know, prioritizing if somebody is a lower level brain injury or going to another facility where there's going to be a rehab, another PT working with them, it's okay if maybe we sort of shift that to the rehab professional. Well, we're all rehab professionals, but the rehab PT. But I think on acute care, especially if someone's going back to the community from acute, I would say like prioritizing at least to make sure there's not BPPV. And if there is a a positive head impulse, if there's a hypofunction, starting some of those VOR exercises. We know with the latest CPG that came out earlier, uh, VOR training is better. So if we can catch those things before they get back to the community, I think we're only improving that patient's quality of life and their potential for recovery. So all the um, acute care uh, rehab clinicians should basically be doing that screening you recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, it would be, I know it, it's, if you haven't done in a while, it can be kind of clunky, but like once you've done a couple and it just becomes part of your workflow, I think it's just going to help a lot of people who sort of maybe fall through the cracks a little bit. Um, and it's only going to better people's care and quality. So, yeah. What final pearls of wisdom would you like to share with us and our listeners so that we can be a little bit more alert and discernible when it comes to these patients and have a more keen eye of detecting these patients? Yeah. So I think we rely a lot on what people tell us about their symptoms, especially in the vestibular world, you know, how long the dizziness lasts and what positions, and that can be really great clues for us as to what path we're walking down. But I think in someone that's had a traumatic brain injury, we have to really go back to the like skills that we have, you know, the positional testing, the assessing the ocular motor system, and just remembering that these people can have impairments that and not report symptoms, but it's still going to affect them functionally. So I think it's, we're not ignoring what our patients say, but we're just sort of understanding that this cognitive perceptual deficit is limiting their understanding of what they might be feeling, but we still need to address it. So I think it's, you know, almost like the opposite of not listening, if that makes sense. Like we almost have to check it regardless of what they say. Great. And I I can't help myself. I have one more question Yeah, where I feel if this goes unnoticed or untreated, is this something that can then turn into uh, like a 3PD sort of a situation where the patient is constantly anxious and not feeling right, or we haven't gone that far to look into this condition? Um, We haven't gone that far with the official 
diagnosis of vestibular agnosia to know that. But if you look in some of the literature about anxiety post-TBI and dizziness post-TBI, in the patients that can express it, people report increased anxiety up to like five, seven years post-TBI and dizziness five to seven years post-TBI. And is that because maybe when they were cognitively impaired, we might have missed something? I, it, I don't have enough evidence to say that that's not happening. So I, I do think you bring up a good point, like by not addressing it, maybe by the time they've cognitively cleared to express what they're feeling, we might have like missed the boat on the first issue. And now we've introduced this more prolonged kind of chronic dizziness. So I think that's, you know, really insightful and something that, yeah, if we catch it early, even if they are complaining of it, we've at least like checked one box, it's done. We've got that, you know, taken care of as we work on some of the other um, impairments post-TBI. I can't thank you enough for taking um, the time to educate us. Also wanna thank Dr. Susan Whitney who actually got us and uh, put me in touch with you so we could actually see this to fruition. I'm definitely galvanized. It is a great topic and I'm, I'm sure everybody else listening in will feel the same way. Um, thank you very much for your time and thank you for having for a lot me. more uh, research to come. You're very welcome. Pleasure. We're Alice. Take care. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.